Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are, as usual, podcasting to you from the 11th floor of a building here in Atlanta, Georgia. Big concrete and glass structure shooting up into the sky, surrounded by mazes of concrete. There's a giant highway just right outside the window that's continually uh, filled with a stream of traffic. There's noise. There's some greenery, but... It's difficult to argue that this is in any way, shape, or form a natural environment. And yet, it inhabits a natural environment, if you think about it. I know we're way up on the 11th floor, but all around us there are ghosts, ghosts of chemicals of years past. And we forget that even though we're up here in these rarefied airs of the Buckhead region of Atlanta... Um, we are very much tied to the earth below, where, of course, we know this, but we take it for granted, many things existed before us. There are ghosts of fauna and flora all around us. Yes, ghosts in a, in a met- metaphorical sense, uh, though I would love to see a giant sloth made out of ectoplasm on my train ride to work some morning. Uh, but indeed, You haven't seen that on Marta? Uh, not yet, but it's just a matter of time, really. Okay, all right, you just wait. <laughs> But indeed, I mean, the, the, when, when you start looking at the, the details, when you start looking at the fossil record, uh, you see these shadows, you see these ghosts of the environment that came before, the natural environment that came before the rise of man. Yeah, I think one of the best examples of this is actually in Trafalgar Square. That's not to say that you will find hippos and elephants roaming around Trafalgar Square today, which is this incredibly compact area of London, right? Well, the only time I was there, I couldn't see it because there was a Scissor Sisters uh, concert in Trafalgar Square. Right. But any other day, you would see the hippos and elephants. <laughs> uh, but actually, excavation of, of various sites in London, including Trafalgar Square, found remains from the last ice age of these animals. We're talking about 110,000 to 12,000 years ago. So, again, here's a good example of this, you know, extremely densely populated area, which does have some classical elements of human history mm-hmm. woven throughout it, which makes it feel really historical. But when you think about these megafauna roaming around, you know, 110,000 years before, you really begin to get the sense that um, everywhere we are, we are surrounded by this deep history, we forget how very rich it is. Yes, and we're we're talking about about creatures of all sizes, including megafauna, the 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 ultra large creatures, the king sized creatures that have uh, have subsequently vanished from uh, from much of the world. Yeah, in fact, there's more evidence from remains that monkeys and rhinos were also native to Britain during another period, about six hundred thousand years ago, with a climate. That is similar to the one we have today, which has had some people say, well, hey, why don't we bring back monkeys to the UK? And we'll get into that in, in a bit. But it does bring up this idea of these these ghosts of the past and what they mean to our current ecosystems. Yeah, and the, the ecosystem is key here because, it's, you know, especially in our urban environment with our fancy towers and our highways, we, we often think of ourselves as detached from the ecosystem. We think of here's the city and beyond the city. Well, that's, that's the nature. And if we have some, some nature here in the city, you know, and some potted plants and a little, little garden here and a park here, well, that's all fine and good. But we don't 
think of it in terms of, we don't think of ourselves in terms of being a part of the of, of the ecology itself. Yeah, and a lot of this is because more and more of us are living in urban centers mm-hmm. in a way from farmlands and away from nature. And we've talked about this before in several podcasts having to do with um, just inhabiting cities, which mm-hmm. is vastly different even from the 1800s. So what happens here is that you get yourself a little bit divorced from the reality of nature, what's going on out there. And then you also have this sort of storybook uh, reality that was created for you. And John Muallam, who wrote The Wild Ones, talks about this a lot, that we are raised on all these sort of parables that deal with animals and this idea that there's this luxurious amount of animals out there for us to just revel in, when in fact we know that if we want to see an animal, a wild one, particularly one that is exotic, you got to go to the zoo, right? Right. And so again, this is just kind of underscoring again how very far away we are from from true nature. And it starts to get into this idea of, well, if we're that removed from our own ecosystems, then perhaps we're that removed from understanding how we affect them. And that we may even be entering into a period of ecological collapse as a result. And by that, we're talking about the just the overall crippling of an ecosystem uh, and a drastic reduction in its ability to support the organisms that are a part of it. And, of course, again, we are organisms that are supported as a part of it. We don't exist outside of it. We, we, we exist within it. Uh, and uh, ecological collapse is often a permanent uh, event um, you know, with, with drastic consequences, including mass extinction. Yeah, if you think about it, there's a certain carrying capacity to humans, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have all this junk with us. We have all this need for resources. We have limited amounts of land. We have global warming going on. And we have a population that is just bursting out of control. And we've talked about this by 2050. There are some um, stats out there that say that we may get to 10 billion people on Earth. Yeah, which is a bad thing. I I read an editorial not too long ago um, where uh, an uh, an individual was saying, well, it's not necessarily a bad thing. We need to stop thinking about it as a bad thing because they were making a case for for a a very optimistic case for the education of people and the changing of people, Mm -hmm. and uh, which is all well and good. But when you're looking at the the facts, when you're looking at the the sheer numbers, it's very hard to... uh, to see that as, as any kind of a positive outcome for the planet. Yeah, and I think we're so good at kicking the can further into the future anyway and saying, we'll deal with that when we get there, mm-hmm. right? And, oh, technology, that will save the day. But yeah. Or we're just getting better. You know, we're, yeah. we're more enlightened. Enlightenment will save us even if there are even more of us. But we know that's not necessarily true when, when the road meets the, the rubber or the rubber meets the road. Not everybody is acting the way that would be helpful for the environment. And I'm glad you mentioned the the road again because the road ends up is is a part of this. We have this massive, continuous concrete asphalt thing that is basically like a a chain that we've uh, we've used to wrap up the uh, the natural environment, cutting across uh, you know uh, territories of existing animals, tearing up the landscape, uh, allowing uh, humans to uh, to to permeate every every part of the environment. 
paved paradise and they yep. put up a parking lot. Well, yeah, that's Ooh, true. Bop, bop. That's another way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, seriously, I mean, you, you think about it in that way, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just the paving of land. And then also people burn forests for agriculture and grazing. And as they replace native vegetation with monoculture crops, that discourages cloud formation. And that alters the relationship between the Earth's surface and the atmosphere, which initiates further drying and warming and further species loss. And again, here is this sort of invisible, I say invisible because we don't see the chemicals, right? We mm-hmm. don't see them interacting. All of this stuff going on behind the scenes. And it's hard to get a bead on it for us humans because we like to have concrete, nice visual things to illustrate what's happening in our lives, right? And so I think that's some of where the, the climate issues come into play because you have one camp that says dire need Big trouble right now if we don't address this. And you have another camp that says, eh, I don't really see much going on here. It's getting a little bit warmer. So uh, we're going to try to discuss a little bit more of this. And it does all have to do with this ecological collapse. Now, so many of these examples of ecological collapse and the uh, the forces at work in ecological collapse, it's very much like a spiral. You see one thing uh, that sort of kicks off the movement, and then it just keeps going and going, mm-hmm. and it gets more disastrous and more disastrous until hopefully uh, somebody checks uh, the action. And listeners may uh, remember we did an entire episode about this called Black Blizzards of the Dust Bowl. So the Dust Bowl occurred in the 1930s here uh, in the United States, but its roots reached back into the late 19th century. You had pioneers moving into a, a semi-arid uh, Midwestern Southern Plains region. And uh, what did they do? They wanted to make a living, right? Uh, so they were farming. Then World War I hits, and farms needed to up their production, so they turned to the machines. They brought in plows and other farming equipment. And between 1925 and 1930, more than 5 million acres of previously unfarmed land was plowed. So you had record crops in 1931, but soon there's too much wheat on the market, and there's too little money out there to spend on it, so prices plummet. Okay, so what they do, they expanded their fields in an effort to turn out a profit. They covered the prairie with wheat uh, in place of natural drought-resistant grasses, Mm -hmm. and they left uh, any unused fields bare. So, and then in the wake of uh, all this plow-based farming, the tilling of the soil, you have fertile topsoil that literally blows away in the wind, and without it, the ground becomes less uh, nurturing and more susceptible to drought. So we, we see this example where, where humans, as always, have remade their environment. They've remade their world. And, uh, and then what happens? Drought comes, like a vengeance. High temperatures set in. It bakes the parched earth. And when the winds blow through, they summon up these great black dust storms. Yeah, and those dust storms wreak havoc on people, right? I mean, you all of a sudden are in this really inhospitable uh, terrain, and you don't have the resources that you normally would in terms mm-hmm. of food. In fact, John Steinbeck explored this in a fictional manner in The Grapes of Wrath, and I think most people are familiar with it, or with the Dust Bowl um, in that sort of fictional account. But this happens all over the world. I believe that Australia has dealt with this. Uh, right now in Arizona, there has been a huge impact on farming practices and how that has changed the land for the worse. So we see this on and on and on again. And it's a kind of extinction of vegetation, of flora that is changing the ecosystems and changing our access to resources. So the other thing you have are, are animals here as part of this equation. And I wanted to bring up ancient Egypt because there's a 2014 study that's published in the September 8th 
Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS, and it found that about 6,000 years ago, there were 37 species of large-bodied mammals in Egypt. But today, there are only eight species. So some of the species that were lost, lions, wild dogs, elephants, oryx, hartebeest, and giraffes. So those were roaming around, right? And megafauna is really important uh, for keeping other species in check mm-hmm. um, for also spreading seeds and also interacting with the vegetation. So what you're talking about here on the Nile is that there were three major periods of really dry climates that happened over that 6,000 years. And what happened is you also at the same time had human population just increasing quite a bit along the Nile. And you have a competition, a competition for space and this contributed to wiping out species. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of this is based on the fact that we we saw the illustrations of these creatures uh, in the artifacts of the day. Yeah, that's right. They were able to really go back and uh, and figure out what sort of species existed and, and yeah. what time periods. Not counting humans with jackal heads, of course. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And current ones too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um so what we're talking about are keystone species. These are creatures that interact really strongly with the environment and they wield an outsized influence. So an example um would be even a beaver. Like you don't necessarily think about them as these big giant um powerful uh, you know animals, but what they do is they alter the course of streams, they open mm-hmm. meadows within forests, they create pond ecosystems. And then here's another example. Elephants They graze and they browse and they act like forest engineers and they push over trees and they keep vast grasslands like the Serengeti open. And that makes them the keystone species. So Carolyn Fraser, who wrote the book Rewilding the World, says, quote, the list of threatened plants and animals we rely on is weird and varied, including amphibians, bears, gymnosperms, uh, cone snails, sharks and horseshoe crabs. She says cone snails, they have toxins that are prized in medical research for their use in developing pain medication for cancer and AIDS patients. Uh, the blood of horseshoe crabs that carries antimicrobial peptides that kill bacteria it's being tested for treatments in HIV, leukemia, prostate cancer, breast cancer, and rheumatoid arthritis. And these are all things that we depend on, but we don't realize that our actions as humans are decreasing the populations of. Yeah, here's a quote from uh, Center for Biological Diversity. They say, uh, quote, although extinction is a natural phenomenon, it occurs as a natural at a natural background rate of about one to five species per year. Scientists estimate we're now losing species at 1,000 to 10,000 times the background rate, with literally dozens going extinct every day. It could, could be a scary future indeed, with as many as 30 to 50 percent of all species possible heading toward extinction by mid-century. And uh, also adding, 99 percent of currently threatened species are at risk from human activities, primarily those driving habitat loss, introduction of exotic species, and global climate change. Which leads to the idea of global ecological collapse. And we'll talk about that as well as the frozen zoo and the doomsday seed vault when we get back. All right, we're back, and, you know, so many of our episodes lately seem to be dwelling on this long-term versus short-term idea, this idea that we we only live in the short-term. And I don't think anything could be more true than this when you talk about uh, ecological systems or the future of of our planet and the environments. 
contained within. So when you start to look at global ecological collapse, it, first glimpse, it does feel a little bit like the sky is falling, the sky is falling. On the other hand, if you take all of the data and, and you put it together, you see that there is a direction that we are going toward, which seems to indicate a, a global-wide collapse of ecosystems if we can't get our stuff together. Indeed, we may be approaching uh, what is called a state shift in Earth's biosphere, which is as scary as it sounds, a planetary-scale, critical ecological transition as a result of human influence. Yeah, there's a 2012 study called Approaching a State Shift in Earth's Biosphere, and it talks about how humans have already converted about 43% of the ice-free land surface of the planet for raising crops and livestock and building cities and nice buildings like the one we're in right now. And studies on a smaller scale have suggested that when more than 50% of a natural landscape is lost, the ecological web can collapse. So the idea is let's step back and look at this from a planetary perspective and see it going on all over. And Dennis Meadows, who is a professor emeritus of systems policy at the University of New Hampshire, and he's written extensively on the limits of growth, says... Collapse will not be driven by a single identifiable cause simultaneously acting in all countries. He says it will come through a self-reinforcing complex of issues, including climate change, resource constraints, and socioeconomic inequality. When economies slow down, fewer products are created relative to demand. And when the rich can't get more by producing real wealth, they start to use their power to take from lower segments. Okay, well, that's that does definitely sound alarmist, but it does paint a picture of, of a greater population of people and less resources to go around for everyone. Yeah, and then we're also facing what is called a youth bulge. Um, this is a this is basically on, on one level, it's easy to dismiss this because you you just look at the basic reality that the old always distrust the youth. Mm-hmm. The youth are always filled with all of this passion and this feeling that they can change the world, and uh, sometimes they can't. Sometimes they have the scary ability to change the world, and, uh, and and how do we deal with that? And then what do you do when, uh, due to population explosions, you see this sudden swell in the number of youths out there, mm-hmm. youths that end up having these very passionate ideas about what they need to do, sometimes militant ideas about what they need to do to change the world. Yeah, and according to Kenneth Weiss of the LA Times, of the you know, something two and a half billion people who will be added to the planet by 2050, 97% are expected to be, to be born in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Now, these are some of the poorest, most volatile countries, mm-hmm. and we know about 80% of the world's civil conflicts um, since the 1970s have occurred in countries with young, fast-growing populations. And again, this is the, the youth bulge that we're talking about. So the stage is really set uh, for those who have control and influence to try to maintain that control influence and influence in that status quo. And then for the poor to turn toward opportunities, whatever opportunities they may have, whether or not that's that's joining a militia or whether or not that is doing something that's more positive to affect change. And so that's when you begin to look at the global collapse, not just as an environmental one, but also an economic one. Yeah, yeah, the the, the economic and ecological ramifications of conflict. I mean, we've discussed in the past, I feel like uh, we did an episode about uh, about sunken dangers, I think it was, yeah. where we talked in part about some of the lingering ecological problems stemming from the Second World War, uh, which, uh, you know, again, was a, 
it was indeed a massive conflict, was truly a world war anywhere you went on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody was wrapped up in this uh, this turmoil in one way or another. Um, it, it just it makes me think about some of our recent episodes about um, infectious disease. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, we're looking at the complexity of, uh, of, of the, the ecosystem, and you can easily tie that into, uh, into Gaia hypothesis, the idea that, that all of the life on Earth is essentially one organism, that it's all mm-hmm. interconnected. Because we, we, we do see that when we talk, look at ecological collapse. We see the dominoes falling over. Yeah. When, when you hurt one thing, when you take one thing out, when you pollute one corner of the Earth, there are shock waves, and, uh, and the results can be catastrophic. And it's, it's hard not to see human culture as an illness uh, in the organism, in the, the meta-organism of life on Earth. But it's a, but it's a nefarious organism. It's, it's, it's one that is infecting more than just one area. You can't just, you can't just treat one tissue or one part of the body because it is, it is so ingrained in every uh, part of the creature. Not to keep bringing up the Matrix in every episode, <laughs> but there is one part when the, when the alien guy—I can't remember the, his name. Mr. Um, Smith. Yes, Mr. Smith. Yeah. I should know or that. Agent right. Smith. Yeah, I can't Agent remember Smith. what his title was. And he talks about how humans really have been the cancer on the Earth, and and that's mm-hmm. the very dark view of it is that we are affecting all of these negative changes, and and doing it somewhat willy nilly. Although I will say. It appears that we, we, we are trying to have a backup plan in place. And I don't just mean people um, putting together different plans, which we'll talk about. One of them is rewilding. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but taking a very, like, what would happen tomorrow if there were the apocalypse approach. And what I'm talking about is the doomsday seed vault. Yeah, no, seed, seed vaults... Um Seed refuges are, you know, they're nothing new. We've been, uh, we've been doing those as a human culture for quite some time, and there are a number of different ones around the world. But the most famous of these, located uh, on the Norwegian archipelago, is uh, Svalbard, the Svalbard Seed Vault. Out, out here in this uh, largely barren... Uh, Arctic. Arctic, frigid wasteland where polar bears roam. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and it's not completely unoccupied there. It was a, a mining... Uh, uh, place for for some time, but but still, it's a very remote setting, and it's the perfect setting to uh, have this uh, this vault where they hope to and, and are in in the process of storing the world's seeds, so that we'll have this seed heritage, not just the you know the massive seed crops that mm-hmm. we we have and depend on, but other varieties, because it gets very very complicated. Uh, it's it's like you know when you have one variety that you're depending on exclusively, it's it's like having a, a you know inbreeding uh, that that crop is insusceptible to harm. Uh, and then likewise, you have, uh, you have uh, types of plants that if they vanish, then we, we want the uh, ecological heritage of being able to, to study it, to grow it, and, and heal the earth even, if you want to get uh, uh, you know, almost uh, religious about it. Well, that's the day after the apocalypse. You would, re- you would return to this compound here. Yeah. Um, and then just start <laughs> cultivating the seeds. I mean, that is a very simplistic view of it. But if you've never seen this before, it's pretty amazing. It's basically like a concrete wedge pounded into a mountain. Mm-hmm. And it contains the world's crops, 1.5 billion seeds, including everything from California sunflowers to ancient Chinese rice. So it's kind of like a backup copy of nature, at least in seed form. Yes, well, a, a backup copy that you would... Have to put some considerable work in um, to 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 implement. It's uh, 
it, it's not a yeah. there's no push push the button and repopulate the earth uh, mechanism at uh, Svalbard, but it is uh, it contains it, the algorithms. It, it does. It contains it contains the it's essentially the the seed heritage of the mm-hmm. the world. Yeah, in which if you think about it, like we we have um, crop extinction all the time, and this mm-hmm. happens usually because of the mono agriculture practices that right. we have in place. So it's it's not weird that we would lose some crops, but some of it has been exacerbated, has been made worse because of our practices. So consider that in the 1800s, there were 7,100 catalog species of apples in the United States. Today, there are just 300 species. So we lose them all the time. But the seed vault, again, it's it's a place where you could start from the beginning. It's the idea that if we had a disease that was rampant, that mm-hmm. took out a large amount of the population, if there was something that, that created that collapse, uh, maybe it's global warming, uh, maybe it's war, that we would have something to return to. You know, on the subject of, of lost crops, if anyone out there wants to watch a good cooking show, a good food show, I highly recommend uh, The Mind of a Chef oh, on yes, PBS, yeah. especially mm-hmm. the, the second season as it pertains to this episode. Uh, it features a, a lot from uh, Chef Sean Brock, uh, who, who really goes into uh, lost seed heritage and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and reclaiming it, uh, and especially in, as it concerns Southern cuisine. Because you see the shift where people are getting away from the crops that are actually grown and the plants that are part of the natural ecology mm-hmm. or stuff that we've we've lost as we move towards these big monocrops. Yeah, and the flavors, right? I feel yeah. like the, the different species are kind of like the uh, Willy Wonkas of flavors in nature that we don't always experience because of the mono agriculture. And I believe Noel, our producer, he turned me on to that show. Um, it is really great, Mind of a Chef. So check it out. All right, so you have your seeds, but what, what about your fauna? That's right. It's one thing to have the plants, but uh, again, it's uh, it's you know getting back into that idea of of ecology as the complex system about life on Earth as, as one whole. You mm-hmm. need all the pieces. So, what do you do about the the animal pieces? Well, uh, there are currently several programs going on uh, of note uh, to preserve the genes of endangered animals. There's China's giant panda breeding and research uh, base. They keep eggs and sperm and other tissue samples from mm-hmm. pandas and other native species, and they keep it all in cold storage. There's uh, the UK's Frozen Art Project uh, took on the mission to create a network of, of similar gene banks around the world devoted to endangered animals. And there is the Frozen Zoo, which Oliver Ryder at the San Diego Zoo created, founded. Um, that is a cryopreservation of cells and DNA from endangered animals, over a thousand species. And Ryder says, quote, it's a small amount of biodiversity for the number of species that are potentially facing extinction. So, as you had, if we call back to the, some of the statistics that you threw out earlier, the amount of species, that's, those are good efforts to try to preserve some of them, but we mm-hmm. won't be able to do all of them, particularly the ones that are going extinct. Um, but I think it kind of, this whole thing, stepping back and looking at seed preservation or DNA preservation of species, the fact that we are sinking millions if not billions of dollars into these endeavors i think will illustrate the concept that perhaps something is going on (laughs) and that we should take this seriously the fact that that ecological collapse could happen and uh and i and i also want to want to caution too don't take too much heart in the uh in especially the, the frozen zoo movements in the sense that bear in mind that bringing an extinct animal back 
just with its uh, genetic information uh, on that alone, just with this blueprint, uh, is, is, is exceedingly difficult. So this is not a situation where, oh, we just have a backup. Again, you just push the button and it's good to go. No, it's, it, there's some hope in it, but... Uh, but for the most part, when a species is gone, it is gone. Well, and if you're talking about a really a huge extinction here, mm-hmm. and we're talking about uh, global uh, ecological collapse on a mass scale, we're talking about mass extinction. Yes. And let's keep this in mind. 250 million years ago, the most catastrophic, the great dying of the Permian Age wiped out over 90% of all species in the oceans and 70% on land. And it took tens of millions of years for life to recover. So I don't know that we're going to, I mean, some will say we're going toward the sixth extinction mm-hmm. um, of humans and, and that, you know, you can have as many seeds and, and frozen DNA as you want of species, but that's not going to counteract the amount of time it takes to put systems back into place. Indeed. But yeah, to your point, we've had... Especially if we're not around to do it. Yeah. But again, yeah, again, to your point, though, we've had five known mass extinction events in Earth's history, and it's it's crucial to note that two of them wiped out at least half of all species. So that's that's pretty staggering. So when we talk about a sixth ex- extinction event, uh, it it is not a minor occurrence. No. And Carolyn Fraser, again, the author of Rewilding, says bio- biologists have begun to understand that nature is a chain of dominoes. If you pull one piece out, the whole thing falls down. Lose the animals, lose the ecosystems game over very well put and again this is one of those things that is so difficult for us to wrap our heads around because there there's not this sort of concrete thing in front of us that says by the year x all things will die off we can only look at what's happening and predict what we think is going to happen and we can't say with certainty at what moment. And I think that's what drives us nuts. And I think that's what drives some people to inaction. Indeed. And, and again, it just comes back again to our, our inability to, to deal with the, the long-term consequences of mm-hmm. our actions uh, in, in, in our own life as well. But when you start looking at, at the model being the, the lives of our children and their grandchildren or the generations to come, uh, it just it seems to cripple us even more. Yeah, there's something called a shifting baseline syndrome, and it's a concept that was coined in 1995 by fisheries scientist Daniel Polly, who said that each subsequent generation of scientists uses wildlife populations at the time they entered the field as the baseline, leveling the awareness of how much these populations may have plummeted between that point and the baseline of the generation before, which leads to this sort of environmental generational amnesia. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that makes perfect... I mean, the, the old people will always tell you, you know, when, when, when I was your age, it was such and such. And mm-hmm. when I was your age, it was such and such. And we, we, we almost never listened to that, except maybe as a just a, a curious, uh, you know, side tangent. But... Right. But that's the reality we see here. It's, it's always, we're, we're just taking our own experiences of when we, we enter into this world and using that as, as, is almost the, the, the primordial setting, as the base setting that, uh, that everything else needs to be lined up to. Forgetting that this uh, base setting is somewhat downhill from where it rolled from last time and then from the time before. Right. Deep time just isn't generally our thing. And right. so, yeah, we don't remember or even sometimes know that there were elephants in Trafalgar Square, right? right. Um, and that there was a very different uh, environment in place before us. It's uh, basically each generation. It's, it's, it's like if you came into the doctor in 
this is and you've only had this new doctor for two weeks, and the doctor says, "Hey, you seem to be uh, doing great. You're you you know only one of your knees is uh, is is paining you." And then you have to remind the doctor, "But there was a time when neither of my knees pained you pained me." <laughs> and then the the doctor says, "Well, I wasn't here for that." And then he just starts to go in about how we're not supposed to be upright anyway. Yeah, exactly. sitting at desks. All right, so uh, you know this is uh, this is a bit of a bit of a bummer episode in some respects. It's kind of uh, it's not a happy pants episode. Not a happy pants episode for sure. So I'm gonna. I I thought maybe I'd cap it off by reading uh, uh, just a quick little uh, paragraph from another bummer uh, work. Uh, (laughs) uh, That being Cormac McCarthy's Uh, The Road. Here's this uplifting quote. Bring it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's beautiful, but it it does deal with with mass extinction, with the loss of life on the planet and the Mm -hmm. complexity of life on the planet. Uh, So here it goes. Once there were brook trout in the streams in the mountains. You could see them standing in the amber current where the white edges of their fins wimpled softly in the flow. They smelled of moss in your hand, polished and muscular and torsional. On their backs were vermiculate patterns that were maps of the world and its becoming, maps and mazes of a thing which could not be put back, not to be made right again. In the deep glens where they lived, all things were older than man, and they hummed of mystery. So there you have it. Uh, great book, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, and I'm pretty sure that one's available on Audible uh, for anyone who's thinking about taking up that Audible deal that we uh, mentioned in the break. Indeed. All right. Uh, make sure to check out the next episode, which is about rewilding, which I guess you could say is one of the ways in which we could approach this in a very tactile way, yeah. a very concrete way, and, and try to find a solution. Yeah. So if you, you want something a little more upbeat to cap this off, tune in next time, and we will... Uh, we'll cheer you up a little bit because rewilding is uh, is, is a, a, a dash of hope uh, to uh, to take on top of this uh, this topic. Yeah, and a Komodo dragon for everyone. Yeah, who doesn't want that? Yeah, check it out. Say, and in the meantime, uh, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is our homepage, our mothership. You will find every podcast episode we've ever done. Uh, and the podcast landing page for this episode will include links to related content, stuff we've mentioned here, etc. cetera. Uh, that page also includes links out to our various social media accounts. So you can certainly follow us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, Tumblr, Google+, you name it. We'd love to hear your perspective on this topic. And uh, you can send your thoughts to us at BlowTheMind at HowStuff. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.